Glory to Jesus Christ. Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish presents Light of the East, a program revealing how the Eastern Catholic Churches have nourished the Roman Catholic Churches and today's world in profound ways through their histories, traditions, mysteries, and spirituality. Hello, I am Father Thomas J. Loya, pastor of Annunciation of the Mother of God Byzantine Catholic Church in Homer Glen, Illinois, and this is a story of the Eastern Churches, an inspiring story of faith, courage, intrigue, mystery, spirituality, dissension, and reconciliation. But most of all, this is an expression of a great experience of faith through our unique divine liturgy. Join with me now as we look toward the Light of the East. Light of the East is also supported by Eastern Christian Publications, where you can find the prayers of the Catholic Byzantine Daily Office at ecpubs.com and by easternchristianmedia.com, a broadband network for you to learn more about the Eastern Catholic Churches. That's easternchristianpublications.com. Glory to Jesus Christ. Welcome to Light of the East. I'm Father Thomas Loya, your host on this first Sunday of Lent, according to the Byzantine Catholic calendar. Also, many would know today as St. Valentine's Day. As you're listening to this program, I am actually on my way with other people, other parishioners, to St. Athanasius Byzantine Catholic Parish in Indianapolis, Indiana. For those of you in that area, or you have friends or are familiar with that area or are passing through it, stop by and visit our good friend Father Brian Iman there, the pastor at St. Athanasius Byzantine Catholic Parish in Indianapolis. The reason I'm on my way there with others is because we have a tradition in the Byzantine Catholic churches to visit one another's parishes on the Sunday evenings of Lent to celebrate together the evening Vesper service. We started this a few years ago in our area, which is the Illinois, Indiana area, and it turned out to be very successful. It is backed by popular demand. It's a custom that is, as I mentioned, is practiced by a number of churches in various areas, and it's a great way to build a certain sense of connectedness and fraternity because we have to remember always that this Lenten season has three dimensions to it, prayer, fasting, and charity. And visiting one another is part of that act of charity. In fact, it's one of the corporal works and spiritual works of mercy that Pope Francis, of course, is encouraging during this jubilee year of mercy. So we're on our way to pray with our brothers and sisters in Christ, our brothers and sisters in a neighboring Byzantine Catholic parish. Well, we also celebrate, as I mentioned, the first Sunday of Lent in the Byzantine Catholic calendar. And this Sunday has actually a day that comes before it, which is significant. That would have been yesterday. It was the commemoration of the miracle of the great martyr Theodore. And we actually eat something a little bit special on that day. It's a very small little item, but it is special. It's called Kaliva, and it's actually almost like a kind of cereal. It's made of grain. And the reason why goes way back to a story, an actual occurrence that happened way back in the 4th century. And this is why St. Theodore has become associated with the first week of Lent. According to the historical records, the Emperor Julian the Apostate, this was in 361 to 363 AD, 
as a part of his campaign against the Christians, attempted to defile their observance for the first week of Lent by ordering all the food for sale in the market of Constantinople to be sprinkled with blood from pagan sacrifices. St. Theodore then appeared in a dream to Eudoxius, archbishop of the city, ordering him to warn his flock against buying anything from the market. Instead, the saint told him, boil wheat and eat this alone. In memory of this event, after the pre-sanctified liturgy on the first Friday, a canon of intercession is sung to St. Theodore, and a dish of coliva, which is this boiled wheat, is blessed in honor of St. Theodore. But also, there's another significance to Theodore being celebrated during this first Sunday of Lent. It's because he is an example of a martyr. In fact, he's called the great martyr Theodore. The great fast season of Lent is a season of spiritual warfare in which we look to the martyrs and people who practiced asceticism, like the great monastics, who died to themselves, died to sin, and we seek to imitate their lives by our own sense of martyrdom. That's the whole point of the fasting and the increased prayer, the longer services, and the increased charity. It's not just to punish ourselves. We have to remember that the Lenten disciplines are not just a spiritual gymnastic or a physical endurance test where we sort of tough it out, and then we can't wait to get back to those things after Lent. They're actually part of a spiritual warfare that hopefully strengthens and transforms us so that if we do, in fact, return to those things that we gave up, now certain things we probably should not return to, certain things we may, but if we do return to the good things, we do so with a certain restraint, a moderation where they don't control us. In other words, we're not ruled by the tyranny of cravings and passions. We are freed from that by breaking their power by the rigors of fasting. But always the three go together, fasting, prayer, and charity. It's never just one or the other or two out of the three. It's got to be all three. Now, speaking of monasticism, it's one of our favorite topics here on Light of the East because we bring to you the riches of the eastern lung of the church, as St. John Paul II referred to it as. And one of those riches, certainly one of the geniuses of the eastern church, in fact, the birthplace of it is monasticism. The birthplace of monasticism is in the eastern churches. It actually started out way back in the early 4th century in the deserts of Egypt. Then from there, it spread throughout the areas of the Middle East and eventually to Europe, and it took on different forms after St. Benedict brought monasticism to Europe. But in the East, monasticism is very revered and very, very characteristic of our spirituality. I'd like to direct your attention to an article recently. It is by John Berger. It's called Byzantine Catholic Nuns Provide Place of Encounter with Christ. Christ the Bridegroom Monastery in Ohio is part of a trend in Eastern monasticism in the United States. Now, this comes from a source which is called Aletia. It's spelled A-L-E-T-E-I-A dot org. A-L-E-T-E-I-A dot org. Aletia. And the author, again, is John Berger. He's interviewing the nuns, proud to say, nuns from my own eparchy, the Byzantine Catholic nuns of Christ the Bridegroom Monastery. And he's talking about their life. They're a relatively new monastery. Well, they are a new monastery, and they're growing. And one of the reasons they're growing is because the nuns there, the Byzantine nuns, are trying to embrace a very authentic form of Eastern monasticism. And they're young, and they're happy. They always have smiles on their face, (laughs) and they pray a lot. They spend about five hours a day in prayer. Imagine that. But they're also very hospitable. They're very productive in their own way, very contemplative, 
very active all at the same time. In the article by John Berger, he also interviews Abbot Nicholas, who's again another friend of all of us here at Light of the East, and he is very active in perpetuating and promoting Eastern monasticism in America. And Abbot Nicholas said this, He said that Christ the Bridegroom Monastery is part of a trend in Eastern Catholicism to return monastic life to a time before it suffered a dichotomy between contemplative and active religious life, or when religious orders became known for various charisms, like teachers, preachers, nurses, social workers, missionaries, and the like. That was good for the time, Abba Nicholas said, but as we're in a post-Christian era, culturally, I think the greater flexibility is better. Now, what he means by this is that as Western monasticism, and to a certain extent, Eastern monasticism in the Western world in recent history, took on specific charisms, as he mentioned. Some were teaching orders, some were preaching orders. That is all, of course, fine and good, a work of the Holy Spirit. What Abba Nicholas is saying here, that now the Spirit may be working in a different way, especially Eastern Catholic churches, calling them to a more authentically and originally Eastern form of monasticism, which doesn't really make those distinctions. Are you teachers, preachers? Are you active or contemplative? You're all those things all at the same time, which again is a, another classic case of the genius of the Eastern spirituality. We live very much in the both and, not in the either or. We don't tend to categorize as much or compartmentalize. We tend to be very integrated in our approach. But again, I emphasize these other religious orders that developed, especially in the West, were the movement of the Holy Spirit, obviously perfectly valid, tremendously, tremendously productive over the centuries. But in Eastern monasticism, it's a little bit different thing, and it seems like the Holy Spirit is calling us back to that. In fact, St. John Paul II wrote in his wonderful letter, Oriental Lumen, which means light of the East, that's where we get the name of our program here, of course, He said that in the East, monasticism has retained great unity. It did not experience the development of different kinds of apostolic life as in the West. The various expressions of monastic life correspond more to different stages of the spiritual journey than to the choice between different states of life. Now, Abba Nicholas also emphasized that as the Eastern Catholic churches have been returning to their practice of being able to ordain married men to the priesthood, again, you have to say it right there, priests do not get married. Married men can become priests in many Eastern churches. As we return to that, Abba Nicholas says, as married priesthood becomes more common, Byzantine monastics will continue to witness to apostolic celibacy and provide a pool of worthy candidates for the episcopacy. So celibacy and marriage are interdependent. They subsist in each other. They live side by side with each other. They're not diametrically opposed. We're going to talk more about the riches of the Eastern churches, especially during the season of Lent, when we return. I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. Light of the East mission is Christianity's reunion. And to tell the story of the Eastern lung of the Catholic Church, we need your support. In order to keep Light of the East on the air, you can make a donation now by going to ByzantineCatholic.com. That's ByzantineCatholic.com. And then donate securely using any major credit card. With your help, we can keep Light of the East's illumination bright. As a married couple, how would you like to give each other the gift of love itself? then this is for you. Hello, I'm Father Thomas J. Loya, and I am inviting husbands and wives to join me and the team of the Tabor Life Institute at St. Nicholas Parish in Munster, Indiana on Saturday, February 27th, and at St. Basil's Parish in Sterling Heights, Michigan on Saturday, April 30th for Embracing the Mystery, a day of recollection for married couples. 
Our presentation weds together the sacramental liturgical worldview of Byzantine spirituality and St. John Paul II's Theology of the Body to rediscover the why of marriage so as to know the how of a happy sacramental marriage. We will also integrate what goes on in church with what should go on in our homes. For information and to register, visit TaborLife.org. That's TaborLife.org. Or call 708-645-0762. 708-645-0762. You're listening to Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. Hi, I am Father Thomas Loya, and I have a special invitation for the ladies. If you are seeking greater happiness in your marriage or just greater perfection in your own personal lives, then come to the 4th Annual Women's Retreat Friday to Sunday, March 4th to the 6th at the Shrine of Our Lady of Consolation Retreat Center in Cary, Ohio. Greater perfection is the theme for this retreat, which I will be directing based upon the writings of Blessed Sister Miriam Teresa Demjanovich, the first person to be declared blessed on American soil. To find out more and to register, call Joan at 419-798-9107. 419-798-9107 or email Joan at washburn.joan5 at gmail.com That's washburn.joan5 at gmail.com I look forward to seeing you there. Welcome back to Light of the East. I'm Father Thomas Lawyer, your host. As you've been hearing on our program, we want to make sure, especially ladies, that you consider our annual women's retreat, the fourth annual one called Greater Perfection. I'll be directing that retreat, and it's based upon the writings of Sister Miriam Teresa Demjanovic, a Byzantine Catholic who was born that way, raised that way, and she died as a Byzantine Catholic at age 26. But she joined an order called the Sisters of Charity, which, of course, was started by Mother Elizabeth Seton. And she remained a Byzantine Catholic, Sister Miriam did, but her writings were absolutely brilliant. She died at the age of 26. She was a novice, and she took her final vows literally on her deathbed. So she's a fascinating figure and a contemporary one. She died in the early part of last century. So she's a contemporary figure by church standards, (laughs) a fascinating one, a brilliant one. And I'll be directing that retreat, so I hope to see you there. Also, we have... Also, there's still time to sign up for another event that I'll be part of. It's the Embracing the Mystery, a day of recollection for married couples. And that's going to be in several locations. The first one up right now will be in Munster, Indiana at St. Nicholas Byzantine Catholic Church. That'll be February 27th. You can find out about that and register by going to our website, TaborLife.org. That's TaborLife.org. We've been talking about the first Sunday of Lent in the Byzantine Catholic liturgical calendar. Preceding this Sunday, of course, was this feast of the miracle of the great martyr Theodore. But the Sunday itself is significant in that it's called a couple things. It's called the Sunday of the Holy Images and the Sunday of Orthodoxy. Now, by Orthodoxy, we mean small o, meaning the true faith. The reason why it's called these two things is because of an historical event. And I'm going to read once again from one of our great resources, our great companions that's going to walk with us here through these days of Lent, and that's the classic book by Archimandrite Callistus Ware called the Lenten Triodion, the Lenten Triodion. And he writes this about the first Sunday of Lent, the sense of joy and thanksgiving already evident in the Saturday of St. Theodore is still more apparent on the first Sunday of Lent when we celebrate the triumph of orthodoxy. On this day, the church commemorates the final ending of the iconoclast controversy 
and the definitive restoration of the holy icons to the churches by the Empress Theodora, acting as regent for her young son, Michael III. He was just a child at that time, so his mother, Empress Theodore, had to act on his behalf. Now, this took place on the first Sunday in Lent, March 11th, 843 A.D. There is, however, not only a historical link between the first Sunday and the restoration of the icons, but also, as in the case of St. Theodore, a spiritual affinity. If the true faith, in other words, orthodoxy, triumphed in the time of the iconoclast controversy, this was because so many of the faithful were prepared to undergo exile, torture, and even death for the sake of the truths. The Feast of Orthodoxy is, above all, a celebration in honor of the martyrs and confessors who struggled and suffered for their faith, and therefore its appropriateness for the siege of Lent. When we are striving to imitate the martyrs by means of our ascetical self-denial, the fixing of the triumph of Orthodoxy on the first Sunday is therefore much more than the result of some historical conjunction. And there's a further significance. As we are trying to perfect ourselves through the rigors of the Lenten season, you know, the fasting, the prayer, the charity, we are trying to configure ourselves more and more into the image and likeness of God. In the Eastern churches, we emphasize very much that we were made in the image and likeness of God. That's the only truth. That's the only truth that can ever really be said about the human person. Everything else really is a lie. That's true. Everything else is an add-on, a foreign intrusion. Isn't it interesting that we often define ourselves as humans as a lie? We often say when we mess up or we sin, we often say, well, what do you expect? I'm only human. But the truth of the matter is, whenever we do something glorious or wonderful, when someone says, oh, good job, that was great, that's when our response should be, well, what do you expect? I'm human. <laughs> The human person was designed by God to be wonderful, glorious, perfect in his image and likeness. All of our failings that we erroneously identify with being human is actually something that came later from sin. It's a foreign intrusion, a foreign object. It's not the truth about who we are. The truth about who we are, plain and simple, is we are made in the image and likeness of God. Yes, it is true that in our current reality, we have sin and death, and we're very imperfect. But those things do not belong to the truth about the human person. They are lies, which, of course, all came from the father of lies, the devil himself. So during the Lenten season, we try to perfect ourselves, to conform ourselves more and more into the image and likeness of God. So back to our significance of the icons today. The icon and think of the word itself, it means image. It is an image of something transcendent. It is an image of the truth that heaven has united with earth through God, especially through his incarnation, and that all the earth and all that God has created will one day be completely sanctified and spiritualized, especially the human person, will all be summed up in Christ as the one bride of the bridegroom Christ, with our bodies and souls reunited, gloriously transfigured, spiritualized, that is, if we've made it to heaven. And so the icon speaks of this truth. The icon also confirms, ratifies the fact that God did become an image. The invisible God became visible through his own physical creation. And this is why we can paint Christ and the saints, the Virgin Mary, in imagery. We can 
depict them in imagery, whether it's statues or icons in whatever medium or form. In this case, it's icons, especially in the painted form. We can do that, and by doing it, we actually ratify and affirm and proclaim the incarnation. This is why iconography is so important, why it is, in a manner of speaking, a canonized art form. In other words, it follows certain styles and guidelines because it is revealing truth. It is revealing dogma and doctrine and theological truth. It is revealing the truth about the one great mystery, that God has become man. God has incarnated himself in his own creation, therefore imbued all of creation with his presence. So everything ought to be seen with this sacramental, Eucharistic, mystical, liturgical view. Notice how I put all those words together. Eucharistic, sacramental, mystical, liturgical. They all basically mean, simply, God is present, revealed, made manifest, in his own creation, especially in the human person. And that then determines how we respond to all of creation, all of life, and especially to the human person. To destroy icons as the iconoclast did, that's what that word means, it means icon smasher. To be an iconoclast is to actually, in a certain way, deny the great mystery, deny the incarnation. This is why the victory over the truth and the ability to legalization of painting icons is such a big deal. In fact, there were seven great councils in the East that hammered out what we believe as Catholics East and West and as Orthodox Christians. And the seventh one, though, which happened in the 8th century, is actually celebrated by itself because it is so significant. It's about icons. It's about where the council proclaimed that, in fact, against all other attacks and heresies about icons, that images can and should be painted, especially of Christ, the Virgin Mary, and the saints and angels. That to fail to do so, to be against that, is in its own way denying the incarnation. And so icons give us a vision of ourselves, of where we're headed, because they depict the eschatological reality. In other words, the ultimate destiny of all creation, for everything to be summed up in God, sanctified in God. And so are we destined that way. And icons remind us of that. Icons also remind us of the reality of the incarnation, that God has in fact become human. The Creator has in fact become His own creation while remaining still the Creator. The invisible has been made visible through the physical, and that changes the quality of the physical world and also how we see and interact with it. So you see, this Sunday is huge. That's why, especially in my parish, we take our little children and they parade around with these icons. They wave them up, they brandish them while the cantors sing the hymns of the day, the dogmatic hymns of the day that proclaim the significance of icons and the victory of the true faith. So to be able to say that icons can and should be painted is also to say and to proclaim the true faith, a fundamental aspect of our true faith, very fundamental, the great mystery, the incarnation. And everything really does come down to that incarnational reality, that incarnational worldview it determines how we see and interact with everything, whether we do so with a God consciousness, a sacramentality, or whether we approach everything in a banal way, a non-sacramental, secularized way. And when we do, nothing goes right. 
We just defiled everything. So this Sunday, this first Sunday of Lent, it's icons. It's preceding day with the miracle of the great martyr Theodore, the fasting, the prayer, the liturgical text, the gesture, the processions with the icons, the increased charity, all of these things are very significant and relevant to us today. I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. To hear Light of the East again, visit byzantinecatholic.com and click on the Features and Programs tab. And on iTunes, Light of the East is produced by ADC Media. Thank you for listening. Next week, we will return to the light of the East. To learn more about Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish, visit our website, byzantinecatholic.com, where you will also find an archive of all of our programs. In order to continue Light of the East with its mission of Christianity's reunion, we need your support with a donation. Any amount will be a blessing. Please make out a check to Light of the East Radio and send it to Light of the East, 14610 Will Cook Road, Homer Glen, Illinois, 60491. That's Light of the East, 14610 Wilcook Road, spelled W-I-L-L-C-O-O-K Road, Homer Glen, Illinois. Or donate online on the homepage of ByzantineCatholic.com. From the Light of the East, a new dawn of unity is in sight. God bless you, go with God, and may God grant you many happy years. Oh!